I went to high school with a girl who had it all. I went to high school with a girl who had it all. Missy was her name. We all called her Mouser. I know. Hey, that was an awesome 1980s nickname. Come on. We called her Mouser. Mouser had a body that then and now is idolized in American culture. She was a cheerleader. She ran track, but she also had one of the smartest minds in our high school. She was in the top 10 of our class. Her dad was one of the elementary school principals in our community. And back then, you only had money if you were a bank president or an elementary school principal. And so she came from money. So she had everything going for her. And it was no surprise to anyone that in the fall, she was crowned homecoming queen. Booyah. Mouser had a boyfriend, though. And her boyfriend was from the shop general studies track. And by January, it was obvious that Mouser was pregnant. I see all the women with their eyebrows raised. Woo! Yes, uh-huh. She indulged herself with her boyfriend. Back then in 1985, if you were an unwed pregnant teen, you didn't get any sympathy showers. There was no alternative school. There was no abortion. There was no way out for her. Mouser was stuck. And we had a tradition in our high school that the homecoming queen got to crown the prom queen in the spring. And I remember the scuttlebutt and the conversations and the meetings that the grown-ups had about whether or not our fine community in the Midwest was going to have an unwed pregnant teenager crowning our high school's prom queen. And they decided that no, sir. No, we were not going to do that. And so one of the high school guidance counselors, some of you rolling your eyes, get with it, it's 2013. I know, but this was back then when dinosaurs were on the earth. And so a high school counselor crowned the prom queen. And a few months later when we graduated, Mouser married that boy. She did not go to medical school. She stayed home and raised that baby. She didn't even go to college. And you could use that story, and you could go on the circuit, right? Actions have consequences. You reap what you sow. Kapow! Some of you are like, well, that's so not fair. It was one mistake. I know one mistake can totally ruin your life, can it? In college, there was a couple, Scott and Carolyn. They were one of those cutesy couples. I went to Wheaton College, which is a Christian college. One of the things I hated was going into one of the dorm lobbies, because if you were a boy, you couldn't be in the girls' rooms. If you were a girl, you couldn't be in the boys' rooms. It was forbidden. So the only place you could be together was in the dorm lobby, and I called them burritos. Burritos were the couples that were all mangled together in a dark corner of the Christian lobby, doing unchristian things with each other that made my stomach sick, just like a burrito. Scott and Carolyn were a burrito. But they both came from well-to-do families. He drove a two-door cherry red BMW. It was a gorgeous car. And one Friday night, they drove to downtown Chicago to have fun. 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock comes around, and both their roommates are starting to worry. They call their RAs. The RAs call the RDs. Student, you know, back then we only had a dean of men and a dean of women, so the dean of men's called in. By morning, they don't show up. Chicago police are involved, and they find the BMW abandoned 
with the keys in the ignition still running in downtown Chicago in one of the lower streets. Well, now everybody's wondering, are they going to be are they going to be found on the bottom of Lake Michigan? I mean, was this a robbery that went bad? Have they been abducted? Are their parents going to get a call in a day or two with some kind of ransom note? And we had special chapel that day. We all prayed for them. And that night, Mr. Tom Brokaw on the NBC Nightly News is mentioning Wheaton College. From Wheaton, Illinois, a young couple has disappeared without a trace. Their BMW left running on Waller Street, Chicago, is not found. Now the FBI is involved. It's everywhere. Days become weeks. Weeks become months. Until the day they turn up in California. They had decided they were just going to run away together. And they didn't tell their parents. They didn't tell anybody. They just up and ran away. And this was back again, 1988. You, they saved cash. They paid cash for things. You didn't need a driver's license to travel cross-country. They went unnoticed for months until someone spotted them in California. Boom. You know it's illegal to be a missing person and not be missing, right? <laughs> I had a friend who was at one of the weddings where Scott and Carolyn showed up. Do you know the embarrassment that caused? Oh, dear, Wheaton College? Oh, yeah. Getting in People Magazine, huge write-up about the Wheaton Evangelical Christian students and what they did, 1988. There was a wedding, and Scott and Carolyn were there, and... Every per after they, you know, months after they were found again, and watched as person after person, he would grab their hand and he would go, before we talk, I need to say to you how sorry we are for the hurt that we caused you, for the hurt that we caused Wheaton College, and for the hurt that we caused the kingdom of God. I'm sorry, will you forgive us? Every single person. Actions have consequences, baby. Right? You sow, you reap, you, you reap what you sow. Come on, can't we take this on the road? Can't anybody get into this? Isn't that how life is supposed to work? Actions have consequences? I have two problems with that line of thinking, in case you haven't noticed by now. One is that there are always exceptions to sowing and reaping. Come on, we're all in the United States of America. Something horrible happened in 2008. A bunch of bankers and financial people with all their little confluted things got us into a, oh, we're all going to die moment. And they investigated, and they determined that things were done wrong, and that people made mistakes. Do you know how many people have gone to prison? Zero. Scott Free bringing the United States of America to the brink of financial ruin. No one has gone to jail. You don't always reap what you sow. It doesn't always happen that way. And then there's things like my own dad ate right his whole life, didn't even live to see 70. And his diet was nothing but dry fish and dry baked potatoes. Blech! And he exercised. Nothing fair about that. Good people have bad things happen. Bad people sometimes get away scot-free. So I don't buy the whole, uh, you know, reap-sow thing as being 100% universally true. The funny thing is a lot of people think that's how God works. God rewards good people and punishes bad people. And so if you have a lot of good things happen to you, it means God loves you. And if you have a lot of bad things happen to you, it means pff, you have messed up. 
and God is really thumbing you for it. A lot of people think that. They do. There is way too much in the Bible that says otherwise. In a word, grace. In a word, grace. Grace stands against that whole line of thinking. Oh, we talk all the time like we understand what grace means. We name our churches after it. Grace Baptist Church. We name our daughters after it. We use the word all the time. Banks have a grace period. It's the time where you can repay the note or the debt without any interest. Then we talk about politicians who've fallen from grace. Like that poor Mark Sanford guy who, you know, cheated on that poor woman, that poor wife of his with that woman from Argentina, and now he wants to be restored to grace because he's running for office again. We use the language all the time. Grace, grace, grace. Musicians play a grace note. Actresses on Oscar night are gracious. Come on, Anne Hathaway, was she not gracious? I'm just up here and I'm in awe of all the other nominees. I'm not even worthy. It's my Oscar. <laughs> gracious. We talk about how the fact that dancers are graceful. Today, I want you to be surprised by grace. That's the only goal I have. I want to surprise you with God's grace. And I want you to be surprised. There's no homework. There's no four things to do this week. I just want to get you to look at the life of one person and go, whoa. I want you to be surprised by grace. And to do that, we're going to look into the life of a man named Judah. Judah's life story is found in Genesis chapters 37 to 44. If ever there was a man who deserved to get what was coming to him, it was Judah. To paraphrase Glinda, the witch of the north, if ever there was a man who deserved to have a house fall on him, it was Judah. And so we're going to look into his life. Judah was one of 12 brothers. Talk about a litterful. 12 brothers from four different women. And dad had a clear favorite, Joseph. Woohoo! Remember the guy with the coat that had the Broadway musical? <laughs> That's Joseph. Right out of the Bible. Favored son of Jacob. And Joseph has these dreams with grain and then the sun, moon, and stars, and it all kind of pans out with this, all of you are going to bow down to me someday. And he handled it the way any 17-year-old would handle something like that. <laughs> oh, you, you've met some 17-year-olds. <laughs> and Judah and all his brothers hated Joseph for it. They hated him and they resented him because of this stuff about bowing down. Well, the first incident that we're going to look at happened 60 miles north of home. 60 miles north of home. And Judah and his brothers are tending the sheep, they're tending the flocks, and Joseph is sent by his father to go check on the boys. Joseph, by the way, was used by his dad to do that all the time. He was the checker, the making, making sure you're flocking right, which only endeared him more to Judah and Judah's brothers. Okay? So, chapter 37, Genesis chapter 37, verses 18 to 20. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes that dreamer. They said, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father, oh, a wild animal has eaten poor Joseph. 
Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Pow! How's that working for you, Joseph? You can feel the love, can't you? Then Judah steps in, and Judah launches his idea. And that's verses 26 and following. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain by killing our brother? His blood would just give us a guilty conscience. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to some Ishmaelites traders. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. We shouldn't kill him. Come on, he's our brother. It's just going to make a big mess of everything. Let's just dispose of him, sell him off, pocket a little change. 20 shekels is what they would have gotten. About two years worth of wages for a shepherd. Divide that up by 11 brothers and you got about two months worth. Right? That's worth it. Come on. It's brother, flesh and blood. So Joseph is carried off to Egypt. And Judah and his brothers go home and, and show dad this bloody coat. And, oh, you know, we think an animal came over poor, poor Joseph. Ooh. Gone. And then we get into chapter 38. And chapter 38 is all about Judah and his life. So Joseph goes off to Egypt. Judah goes on with his life. Judah marries a local woman. Settles down, has three sons. Son one, son two, son three. I'm not going to tell you their names. It's not important. Three sons, three boys. The first boy marries a girl named Tamar. The Bible says the first son is so wicked that, quote, the Lord took his life. You know it's bad when the Lord takes your life because <laughs> of your wickedness. Okay, so son number one's a bad boy. And the Lord takes his life. Well, that creates a problem because son number one in Tamar hadn't had any kids yet. She hadn't gotten pregnant. And in the ancient world, if you didn't have kids, you didn't have money, you didn't have a future. So there was this law, this provision that another brother, a cousin, a relative could come in and marry the widow and make babies with her so that the babies would grow up and become, you know, earning adults that could provide for her, take care of her later in life. Well, son number two steps in and does that, marries Tamar. The Bible tells us that son number two refuses to have a baby with her. And we know why, because son number two is now going to get the double inheritance from his father, Judah. And if he has a son, that double inheritance is going to go to the son of his brother, not him. So he's not incentivized at all to have a baby with her. And the Bible says the Lord killed him off. So now Judah's got what? The backup son. Son number three. And Judah's thinking to himself, what, are you a witch woman? I mean, what's going on? Are you, I'm a, I'm a wench, not a witch. You know, he's wondering, you know, is there a spell? Is there witchcraft? I mean, I've lost now two boys in this enterprise. And so Judah tells her, son number three is way too young for you, honey. Tell you what, you go home. You go home and live with your parents. And when son number three is old enough, I'll send for you. I'll call for you. We'll do the marriage and the whole nine yards, and, and, and hopefully God will provide kids. Okay? So go home. Well, the years pass, and Judah does nothing. Absolutely nothing. Tamar has gotten older, doesn't have any kids, and because she doesn't have any kids, she doesn't have any money, she doesn't have any future. Her dad's getting old, 
And if her dad dies, she's out in the cold. So she takes matters into her own hands and does something brazen. She takes off the widow garments that she would have been required to wear, and she puts on the garments of a temple prostitute with a veil. Because she knows that in the spring, every spring, the wealthy old men all come into town to do business at cheap shearing time. They drink a little, they have a little fun, and they conduct business by the city gate. Every spring, it's the same story. And so she dresses as a prostitute and waits by the city gate, hoping that someone special will come by. And that someone special is, oh, you've heard of this story. Yep, sure enough, who wanders by the gate but her father-in-law, Judah, who does not recognize her. Chapter 38, uh, I know, chapter 38, verses 15 and 16. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and propositioned her. <clears throat> Let me have sex with you. Well, that's a good opener, isn't it? He realized, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. Maybe he had already had a couple of drinks. Maybe it was evening. Maybe it was the veil. You know what I think? In all the years that have gone by, he's not checked in on her once. It speaks to the relationship that he had with his daughter-in-law. Put her away and thought, done with that, like I'm ever going to marry off son number three to her. And so they agree upon a price, a goat, one goat, and she wants some security because he's like, you know, I don't, I don't have a flock with me in my pocket, you know, I'll get you the goat tomorrow. But she's like, no, 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 no. I don't know you from Adam. I want something that, that's going to tell me you're going to come through and I'm going to see the goat tomorrow. So he gives her his signet, cord, and staff. Guys, this is the equivalent of going to a strip club and leaving your driver's license and visa card on the counter. And the next day they call your business or your wife to tell them that you left your Visa card and driver's license at Platinum Express, or whatever it's called. Okay? And that's exactly what happened. So they agree, he gives her his signet cord. The signet cord was what a, a man would have used to signify deals and arrangements. Each one was unique. It's like a driver's license today. Okay? So that's what he gave her for security. They have sex. The next day, he shows up with his servant and the goat looking for the prostitute. And all the local people from town are like, what prostitute? What are you talking about? We don't have one of those at our town at this gate. What do you mean you don't have one? You know, and they, they've, Judah and his servant figure out right quick, this is going to get real embarrassing real fast. Let's just go home and forget about it. Months later, Word reaches Judah that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, has gotten pregnant. The widow has had sex when she shouldn't be having sex. She is not married. Oh, and he is indignant that she would act that way. Well, Tamar waits. She waits until the day they come to get her to stone her. What would have happened is they would have taken her, shaved her head, taken her out, and there would have been a big crowd. 
I don't know if you're familiar with hangings in the United States, but any time an American town had a hanging, there was a crowd. Businesses closed. Everyone came out. Everyone came to see the hanging. It was no different 3,500 years ago. Public execution guaranteed a crowd. And so on that day, when the guys come for her, she says, before you take me, please take this to my father-in-law, Judah. The cord and, and signet and staff is the man who did this to me. I got to wonder if the guys who had gotten that on the way are like, hey, isn't this Judah's? Oh my gosh, I want to be the one to tell him. <laughs> we just got a two for one. It's awesome. Okay, and they show up and so boom, caught, nailed. You reap what you sow. Actions have consequences. It's all culminated. He has no way out. There is a huge crowd. <laughs> right? Caught. This is what he says in verse 26. Judah recognized them immediately and said, she is more righteous than I am. Oh, you got that right, Judah. <laughs> you got that right. She is more righteous than I am. This was a turning point for him. There's, he can't be a hypocrite anymore, can he? Everybody knows what he's done. There's no pretending to be one of the well-to-do men, outstanding men of the community. He may have gotten away with what he did to his brother Joseph, but he didn't get away with this thing with Tamar. Everybody knows. You are a dog, you scoundrel. Everybody knows. Judah is a dog. No mistaking it. You can tie it up with a bow. You can take that on the speaking circuit, can't you? Go to church after church. Uh, be sure your sins will find you out, right? <laughs> Many Baptist church, we love that. But the story of Judas, he doesn't end there. There's more. Famine hits the region really hard. And Judah and his dad and his brothers can't do a crop. No crop. They start pulling from the storehouses. And what's pulled drains to almost nothing. They hear that you can buy grain down in Egypt. So Judah and his brothers go down and take a first trip to go buy grain. And they encounter this very stern Egyptian, second in command of all of Egypt. And after doing some dealings with the guy, they arrange on a price. And on their way home, that first night, they open up their satchels. And the money they use to purchase to buy the grain is in their satchels. And they are panicked. Judah's thinking, oh, man, after this thing with Tamar, you've got to be kidding me. Is this, is this the whole Joseph thing coming to roost? I mean, they're wondering, are Egyptian soldiers going to be coming after us now? I mean, are we just cursed? What is going on here? They go back home, they go through the grain, and his father Jacob's like, we've got to have more grain, we're all going to die. And Judah, and the, they don't want to go back. They do not want to go back to Egypt. But because Jacob pleads with them, they do. They go back a second time. And they encounter that same stern Egyptian, second in command of all of Egypt. This time on the way out of town, soldiers catch up with them. 
and that man's cup is found in little Benjamin's satchel. Benjamin was Joseph's brother, little baby brother, dad's second favorite son. What's Judah going to do, right? He got rid of Joseph. He thought he could get rid of Tamar. He's done one dastardly deed after another. The guy's life is a train wreck. So what's he going to do? Write off Benjamin? Kill his father's heart a second time? Well, the Bible tells us in chapter 44, this is what Joseph, who returns, says to the Egyptian. And now, my Lord, at the end of a very long emotional speech, telling what's gone on in his life. He says, And now, my Lord, I cannot go back to my father without the boy. Our father's life is bound up in the boy's life. If he sees that the boy is not with us, our father will die. We, your servants, will indeed be responsible for sending that grieving, white-haired man to the grave. Where was his concern when he sold his brother into slavery? There wasn't any. But you see it now. My Lord, I guaranteed to my father I would take care of the boy. I told him, if I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I could not bear to see the anguish it would cause my father. Take me. Spare my brother. This is too much. And in the very next verse, chapter 45, verse 1, Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his tenants, Out, all of you! So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. Then he broke down and wept. If you're Judah, if you're one of the brothers, and the stern Egyptian, now not through a translator, in your own language says, I'm Joseph. What's going through your mind? Oh, crap. They can't even pray the Jesus prayer at this point. <laughs> Help me, Jesus. He hasn't come yet. <laughs> oh, crap. What does Pharaoh do to the people who do bad things to Pharaoh? Pharaoh impales him on a stick. Gored to death in front of everybody. And you and I, the whole sowing and reaping crowd, could look at that, right? We're going to get a public execution now, aren't we? Is that what happens to Judah? Is that what happens to Judah? No. In fact, just like out of a scene from The Princess Bride, you know, where the little boy guy's like, okay, I got to know, who gets Humperdinck? In the end, who kills Humperdinck? And Grandpa goes, nobody. He lives to a ripe old age. Dang it, Grandma, you're dead. Grandpa, you're telling the story wrong. Who gets humperdink? No, Judah lives to a ripe old age. In fact, he is invited down to Egypt with all of his kids and grandkids at this point, with his father and all his brothers, and they live like royalty the rest of their days in Egypt. Judah, the scoundrel. That's what happens to him. In a word, grace. Grace. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you believe you need to clean up your life before God will accept you? 
If you think that, you're off. Do you feel you need to make God aware of your good deeds and, and, and there's a part of you that keeps score and you're hoping that that will be enough that will impress God a little bit, get on God's good side? If so, you're off. Max Lucado says this, he says, Grace is the voice that calls us to change and the power to pull it off. Grace is the voice that calls us to change and the power to pull it off. So today, if you're sitting in one of those seats and you're thinking, you know, Mouser, Scott and Carolyn, Judah, that's me. Not a lot of people know, but that's me. I want you to know today that God accepts you where you are. A good place to start is to trust him. Trust him for what he has done and what he's going to do. Trust him. It's a place to start. If you're here today and you're thinking, man, this is a great message, Max. I'm sure there's some people in this room that needed to hear that today. I have bad news for you. You are delusional. Delusional. You want to know why? The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I learned this academically and experientially at Wheaton College. I was a straight-A student. Sophomore year, I'm in New Testament criticism class with Dr. Bob Yarbrough. Kapow! I have an A, solid A, 98.7 A, with the piddly little assignments we've done. And there's a big paper. It's worth 70% of your grade. Turn it in. We get the papers back. And at the top of my paper, at the top of my paper in giant red letters is D. D minus. D is in David. D minus. And this phrase gratuitous gossip of the worst kind exclamation point <laughs> my heart is racing i am sweaty the next day i muster the courage to go see dr yarbrough in his office and ask if i can do extra credit or anything to get some altitude altitude <laughs> <laughs> as I see my grade has now gone down in flames. And I'm standing at his doorway, and he's working, and he glances up and curtly says, what do you want? In that moment, I'm feeling the tin man and lion in front of the great and powerful Oz. Uh, um, da, 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 Dr. Yarbrough, I, you know, extra credit, and obviously I bombed the paper, and, uh, and I'm trying to get this stuff out. And he looks at me and he says, Max, I'll tell you what, if you submit a better paper, I'll award you a better grade. Here's what you did wrong. Here's what a paper like this should be. They didn't teach you that in high school, did they? I bet they didn't. Here's what you need to do. So you submit a better paper, I'll award you a better grade. And as I'm leaving, he says, and wait. If you do that, we'll pretend like the first paper never happened. In a word, grace. I still need God's grace today. Your pastor needs God's grace every single day. This week, my dear friend is in Florida vacationing, and twice I was a little resentful. I need a vacation. I want to be someplace warm. Quit posting those stupid Disney pictures on Facebook <laughs> so that I could see them and see where you are with the fireworks. 
resentful, and envy. Do you know what the Bible calls those? Sin. I am a sinner who needs a Savior. I am a sinner who needs God's grace every day, and so do you. And don't you forget it. If you accept God's grace into your life, God can take a train wreck and turn it into something amazing. He can. Here's what happens to Judah. You're not going to believe this. Chapter 49. Judah's not the oldest in the family. Someone else is. But this is what his father, Jacob, prays over him, this blessing. Judah, my son, is a, long, is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. Because the, the day will come when the Lord himself will come. And he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And if that's not enough, in Revelation 21, this is what it says. This is John's vision of the new Jerusalem. John says this, Revelation chapter 21, verse 12. The city wall was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. Guess, which, guess who got a tribe of Israel named after him? Judah for all eternity you will see his name emblazoned by every gate to the city of God. God can take a train wreck and make it something utterly amazing.